this morning we are going to be picking up where we left off in the, in the gospel of Mark, um, in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50. Uh, you'll remember last week uh, when we left Jesus and his disciples, uh, they had just come down from the mountain of transfiguration, and the disciples, Jesus came back to them having failed publicly to cast out a demon, and it's because we saw they were attempting to do ministry in their own strength, uh, not through prayerful faith in Jesus. And while Jesus last week cleaned up their mess, uh, it was clear that the disciples were not where they needed to be. They still had much to learn. So this next section of Mark, this next couple of texts actually, but where we begin today, um, Jesus is going to take Uh, they're going to go on a journey to Jerusalem for the last part of Jesus' ministry. And along the road, there's going to be a series of portions of Jesus' teaching on discipleship as he kind of goes back to the fundamentals with the disciples uh, before the last leg of their ministry. So Mark, uh, teaching sections are are not as common in the book of Mark. They show up more in Matthew and Luke, but there are some in Mark, and, and Mark groups three sort of portions of Jesus' teaching in this text. Um, he records three segments. So let's, let's read and see how, how this begins. We'll start with the first three verses um, in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30. So would you listen as we read part of God's word? They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And Jesus did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. So again, he, he's sort of keeping himself a secret and because he's teaching something specifically to his disciples. So what we're going to read today is addressed to Jesus' followers. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. It's a theme with the disciples. Uh, About five times in the last couple chapters, Marcus said, Jesus said something and they did not understand. So the big point here, Jesus is about to teach his disciples about the nature of discipleship. And he begins that by teaching about himself. He predicts his suffering, death, and resurrection for a second time to show them that the Messiah is the mold of discipleship. The Messiah is the mold of discipleship. Not mold like black mold or mildew. Mold like a baker's mold or a, uh, a blacksmith's mold. A hollow shape that you pour something moldable into to determine the shape it will gonna be, it's going to be. Disciples are made in the mold of the Messiah. So Jesus' 12 disciples' problem that they keep running into is that they don't understand the Messiah whose mold they're being poured into. They don't understand that they need to take after Jesus' shape. If the disciples get Jesus wrong, they get themselves wrong. And so, for us as well, if we get Jesus wrong, we will not understand what it means to follow him. Last week we talked about how each of us is called to be a disciple of Jesus. Each of us is called to follow Jesus. So to be a disciple, we must understand 
what sort of Messiah we're being shaped into. The Messiah is the mold of discipleship. So over these three sections of teaching that, that follow, that we're about to jump into, Jesus connects the disciples' misunderstandings about discipleship to these three things he says about himself, that he will be handed, delivered over into the hands of men, that he will be killed, and that he will rise again, and says, disciples, you will do the same. So the mold of the Messiah comes to a head in these three sections. Jesus rebukes the disciples, warning them, you can't have the benefits of the Messiah without joining in his suffering and his death. So let's just jump in and see how this unfolds. So would you read with me again, or or listen again, as we start in verse 33. So, and they, Jesus and the disciples, came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, so again, in a private setting in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And so he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in their midst, and taking him in his arms, hugging him, he said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So the first thing in verse 31 where we started that Jesus said about the Messiah is that he will be delivered into the hands of men. And his point is that sets an example for the humility that disciples are supposed to exhibit. But his 12 disciples had fallen into an error here of not seeking to be humble but seeking honor and privilege and uh, being grandiose in their discipleship. They were exhibiting the pride of grandiosity. To be grandiose is to have your head become too big, to get too big for your discipleship britches, so to speak. So that looks here like the disciples bickering about who is going to be the greatest. So they're arguing when Jesus comes and becomes king and throws out Rome, how are we going to stack up in the cabinet, right? You got Peter, James, and John who said, well, we went up on the mountain with Jesus, so I'm thinking kind of a vice president role for me, Peter says. Thomas, maybe like Department of Agriculture for you. This is the conversation they're having. And Jesus simply confronts them by saying, what were you talking about? And there's a click moment where all of them simply keep silent. Sort of like the look your dog gives you when it's peed on the carpet. (laughs) So you know this feeling when you get caught doing something you know is foolish. And the person you respect or in authority simply asks, what are you doing? And the light bulbs come on. And there aren't even words to make excuses. So even they realize there's something contradictory about vying for status and personal glory as a disciple of this Jesus they've been following, right? It's contradictory, as Jesus' teaching explains, because greatness for Jesus does not look like greatness in the world. 
If anyone among you would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So to illustrate this, he brings a, a child forward. Um, in the ancient world, children um, were the, the lowest rung on the social ladder. I'm not saying that's how it should be, but that's what it means when he brings forth a child and embraces uh, him. Greatness as a disciple of Jesus does not look like ladder climbing. It doesn't look like elevating yourself. It looks like condescending. It looks like going down to the lowest of the low and being a servant. If you want to go up, you go down. So the, the second sort of portion of this teaching in verses 38 through 40 is similar. Um, so we'll, we'll jump right into it. In verse 38, um, in a similar spirit, John, uh, good old John, says to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. He doesn't say, Jesus, they weren't following you. They say he wasn't following us. So in the first case, the argument about greatness, the, the disciples are arguing about rank. Uh, but in this second portion, they are uh, drawing the inner ring. Not grandiosity, but exclusivity. So John here is betraying that the disciples thought of discipleship as being in Jesus' privileged inner circle, such that they're jealous of other people having success in ministry. They're like, we're, we're the 12. You're not supposed to be casting out demons. That's, that's our thing, which might have been extra sore because they failed to do that in the previous passage. <laughs> they thought of discipleship as a means to get status and intimacy with Jesus. So Jesus responds to them and says, do not stop him. For anyone who does a mighty work in my name, this is continuing in verse 39, anyone who does a mighty work in my name will uh, not be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose on his reward. Whoever is not against us is for us. There's a lot we can unpack in this short statement about what this means for there being one unified mission among Christians. How we have enemies in this world, but they are not our fellow believers. But Jesus' main point about discipleship here is simply that there aren't factions or tiers of Jesus followers. He says, if this guy is doing ministry in my name and in good faith in my character, you should assume He's bona fide. He's genuinely with me. There's one Jesus, therefore there's one kingdom of God, one gospel, one ministry, as Ephesians 4 talks about elsewhere. Jesus' disciples are not a hierarchy of insiders versus outsiders, not an inner ring versus an outer ring. So in both of these cases, the story about arguing over who's the greatest and arguing over who's in the inner ring both cases, the disciples think too highly of themselves because they don't understand the nature of Jesus, the nature of his ministry. They're still expecting a worldly king Christ, a conqueror Christ, 
And so they keep thinking of themselves in terms of his royal cabinet or his royal court, his campaign contributors who are going to get nicely rewarded. Um, and so they need to get theirs in the inner ring. But on the contrary, Jesus said, that's not the sort of kingdom I'm building. The Son of Man is going to be delivered or even betrayed into the hands of men. Back in verse 31. When he says the Son of Man is going to be delivered over into the hands of men, it's most immediately talking about his arrest before his, his crucifixion. He's going to be delivered over, arrested. But, but that phrase, delivered into the hands of men, is it not descriptive of Jesus' whole earthly ministry? That he handed himself over to humanity. Philippians 2.7 puts it this way, when Jesus, God the Son, became a man, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. Rather than a pattern of grandiosity or exclusivity, the Messiah is a servant. The humility it took for the Son of God to become a human is the template for the lifestyle of disciples. You could read Philippians 2 this afternoon. It's sort of the epistle version of this text. The example of Jesus' incarnation is the template for our humility. Disciples are to be humble because the Messiah is. To be a Christian church is none other than to be a disciple of Jesus. We, each of us, are prone to these same spirits of grandiosity or exclusivity. There is a natural desire in our hearts for these things. It's, it's really a desire for honor, to, to be respected for what you do, or a desire for intimacy, to be in the, in the inner ring with those you respect and love. The point of Jesus' teaching here is not to say those desires are wholly wrong. God has made each of us with an innate dignity. The desire for honor is a natural desire to be loved by the God who made you, to be honored, to have dignity, and the desire to be included, to be in the, the intimate circle of somebody is just the desire to be loved. There, there's an exclusive nature of love that, you know, when a husband and wife are married, there's something exclusive about that love, and that's good. So the desires for intimacy or honor are not inherently bad, but what Jesus is rebuking here is when desire and honor become such a fixation that it turns your whole walk with Jesus inward-focused into what I get out of it rather than what I give. So think of how these two passages might serve as a, a litmus test for pride in our hearts. Is there exclusivity or grandiosity in your heart? Consider, do you see the honor and privilege or authority or promotions of people in, in your life as a threat? When somebody is promoted at your work, is that threatening? When a church member becomes a, a leader of a ministry that you serve in, is that a threat? 
That's what the disciples are feeling as they argue over who's the greatest. Do you feel, on the other hand, uh, threatened or envious of the success and fruitfulness of other ministries or other churches or other families? Does a church that does ministry a different way, a a gospel-preaching church that is growing, does that make you feel envious of them or glad for them? That's the sort of exclusivity the disciples struggled with. Or to take Jesus' example, which would you prefer? To have a, a private exclusive lunch with somebody in power who could help you get up the ladder? Or would you rather spend long, unseen, thankless hours caring for a child? Just as with Jesus' disciples, the solution to our pride, whether it's grandiosity or exclusivity, is to look upon the humility of Jesus. You don't get the Messiah's honor without joining in his suffering. He was last of all, servant of all, and even though he had the right to be the most grandiose, pompous, ladder-climbing, exclusive man that ever lived, that was not the life Jesus lived. Your life as a Christian is meant to be patterned after that example. Church, we find honor and love not in peacocking or ladder climbing, but in serving and giving and maybe even suffering for the sake of others. If you would be first, you must be last. And if that sounds humiliating or debasing to you, consider that it's Jesus' own example. He does not ask you to do that without having first done it himself. And consider how freeing that is as well. If life is lived as a servant, you're no longer in competition with everybody around you. Your value isn't rooted in how you stack up to other people. You don't need to jealously guard your time or your resources to stock them up. Everything you need can be yours in the mold of Jesus who poured himself out for you first. Therefore, you're free to serve others. You won't lose your dignity through serving more. You won't be less intimate with Jesus if your life becomes more outwardly focused. And there's a real peace in this form of servanthood. So in the first case, discipleship is not about ladder climbing or grandiosity. It's patterned after the mold of the the Messiah, delivering yourself into the hands of others, being a servant of all. So as we move on to verses 42 through 47, uh, Jesus just continues talking here. And he goes on uh, in a road that's harder to connect together than the first two. But I want to suggest that these verses, 42 through 47, um, have to do with Jesus saying the, the Messiah will be killed. He will give up his life. And since the Messiah sacrifices his life, his disciples must join him in death. This is how Jesus unfolds it. Picking up in verse 42, Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. 
It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. These are some severe words from Jesus as he rebukes and corrects his disciples. The connection here is that the commitment to follow Jesus as a disciple is a whole life sacrifice. It is not a half in, half out. It's a sacrifice of life. So why is it so important that Jesus' disciples rightly follow his example, Jesus is asking? It's so important because eternal lives are at stake. Both the disciples' own lives in their choice to follow Jesus and the lives of those to whom they would minister. So the key that makes sense of this verse is this main verb that he repeats throughout it. In the ESV it says, to cause to sin. Another translation would be to cause to stumble. So the idea that Jesus is saying here, if your hand causes you to sin or if you cause someone to sin or to stumble, he's not saying if you make somebody sin one time. It's, it's not talking about one sin. It's talking about if you cause someone to fall off the path into um, a state of sin. So another way of putting it, um, this word he uses is the same word that showed up in Mark 4, which we sang about earlier, the, the, saw, the parable of spreading the seeds. Jesus says, some will begin to follow Jesus. The seeds will begin to take root, but when trials come, they will fall away or they will stumble. They'll no longer follow Jesus. And that's the word he uses here, the active form of it, to cause somebody to stumble, to fall away. So Jesus is not talking about one-time sins here, as if you could like, lose your salvation by sinning once. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about apostasy. So apostasy is when someone who once professed some sort of faith in Jesus or started to follow Jesus to some extent went on to renounce Jesus, renounce faith in him. So Jesus is saying, if you cause someone to stumble off the path of following Jesus, or if your hand causes you to fall away from the path of following Jesus. So in verse 42, Jesus is saying, your decision to follow me as a disciple is to choose eternal life or eternal death. And your faithfulness in being a minister of my gospel is a matter of leading people to eternal life or... God forbid, leading people into eternal death, misleading. And to mislead people is a severely grave matter that Jesus takes very seriously. So Jesus is saying, your discipleship and getting it right is so much more important than me suggesting a certain philosophy to you or a certain way of life. 
It's a matter of eternal life and death. So the point, as this ties back to the mold of the Messiah, is that just like the Messiah's mission, his mission to earth, as we know, depended on him dying, on him sacrificing himself, so the lives of his disciples, the mold of discipleship, requires that Jesus' Jesus's disciples sacrifice themselves, wholly give themselves to his ministry. So Jesus says, if your hand or your foot or your eye cause you to stumble, it's better to lose them than to have them uh, strip you off the path. So how do hands, eyes, and feet cause someone to stop following Jesus? Of course, literally speaking, they wouldn't. Our body parts are not the cause of sin or unbelief. Uh, But the point is that Even things precious or dear or close or intimate or integral to yourself, those might be the very things that drag you down spiritually. And it's not worth risking your eternal life following Jesus to cling to these things. So what might those things be? Jesus does not give specific examples. He leaves that vague because it's a question in some ways for you to answer. What are things in your life that would cause you to stumble? What's something that seems integral to your life? It, it, it may be a certain lifestyle or um, a status in society or an income or your sexuality or sexual habits. It may be a romantic relationship or a group of friends. It can really be anything. Hands, eyes, and feet are not necessarily specific sins, but things that are good but not ultimate, that can become a roadblock, a stumbling block. Jesus' point is that good but not ultimate things that pull you down, that repeatedly leave you to sin, that fill your mind with mistrust rather than faith in God, those things are expendable. It's better to lose that thing, even if it's as serious as losing an arm, because the stakes are eternal. So Jesus, uh, we should mention, is, is assuming a teaching of of hell here, of eternal punishment for those who reject God and remain in sin without redemption. Maybe that brings up questions in your mind, and we, we could devote a whole sermon to that topic to show how it's actually consistent with God's love, and it's good that God does not leave evil undealt with. But Jesus is talking about hell here to make the point that if your eternal destiny is on the line, there is nothing that is not worth losing in order to attain that. He's asking the question, will you cling to the things in this life so tightly that you lose everything else? Or will you lose a little now to gain everything? Really, Jesus is expanding uh, what he said in Mark 8.34, which Brian Arnold preached a few weeks ago, 
where he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To cut off your arm is to deny yourself. To take up your cross, a cross is only there for one thing, and it's to die on. This is the reason he gave there in Mark 8, for whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and my gospels will save it. He's saying you don't get life with Jesus without first joining him in death. You have died to your old self and are a new creation. Dying to your old self, putting everything that is not ultimate on the chopping block, if need be. Even maybe your literal life in order to follow Jesus and be a disciple. Now, once again, if dying seems like too great a thing to ask, if that seems like too much for Jesus to ask, consider that Jesus gave his own life up first. To save his people, Jesus did not withhold his own life. He died so that others would live. And discipleship following Jesus involves dying to yourself, sacrificing for others. So Jesus says, just as the Messiah suffers and dies, just as the Messiah is a humble servant and a sacrifice, so his disciples must be the same. Joining him in humility and even death. But remember, we said verse 31 is the template, the mold. And when Jesus laid out the Messiah's mold in verse 31, he didn't just say the Son of Man must suffer and die. He said he must suffer and die so that he will rise again. And his disciples follow him in that as well. And that's good. You follow the Messiah in suffering and death so that you can join him in new life and in his, his benefits. This passage is full of the good things of discipleship too, like the honor and inclusive love we're made to desire. Like when we talked about those earlier, we said those aren't inherently bad things. The point is just the way you get them is not the world's way, it's the Messiah's way. If you would want to be honored and to be loved, the path to that is through servanthood in Christ. So in verse 37, he says, the one who is a servant of all receives God, is joined in life with God. And in verse 41, he says, the one who is doing ministry in my name will by no means lose his reward. Discipleship is costly, but it's so good. The suffering and death of discipleship is not an end in itself, but it's aimed at new life that can't be attained any other way. Only through death do you enter life, enter the kingdom of God. That's the point of verses 42 and through 47. To enter life with Jesus, you must be humbled and die with Jesus. So to pull this all together, move on to the, the last two verses. Jesus gives this sort of mixed metaphor that we'll read that ties this together. So, so read, read verses 49 through 50 with me. He says, For everyone 
will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. That clears everything up, right? (laughs) Those are pretty obscure verses at at first glance. But like I said, Jesus is um, doing actually a very Jewish rabbi sort of thing of of mixing these metaphors together um, to sort of show how it is that discipleship takes after the pattern of the Messiah. So let's unpack this quickly. So there are three things we can say about discipleship from these two verses. First, discipleship involves dying to self and giving up one's life as a sacrifice, as we said. Everyone will be salted with fire, which you can hurt your head trying to figure out what that means. Uh, But what I think he's referring to is is a metaphor of ceremonial sacrifice, So if you read verses like Leviticus 2.13, or or several places in the Old Testament, they say that salting a sacrifice uh, before it's burned up is part of the process in the Old Testament for for giving an offering to God. So in Leviticus 2.13, you make a grain offering and you salt it as you burn it. Um, And that's a way of making a sacrifice to God. So Jesus is saying, you all will be sacrifices to God. This is the, the metaphor Paul picks up in Romans 12.1 that says it a little more clearly. Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So the point is, when Jesus calls us to die to ourselves as a sacrifice, it's not a purposeless death. It's not a purposeless giving up of your control of your life and cutting off of your metaphorical hand, it's not purposeless, it's devotion unto God, just like Jesus came to die as a sacrifice. Um, Those who must follow him must die to themselves, and sacrifice is death unto God that is pleasing and worshipful to God. So first, discipleship involves dying as a sacrifice. Second, discipleship, and this is key, is good. It's what you need. So Jesus says, salt is good. Have salt in yourselves. Salt in the ancient world, what what that image kind of symbolizes, salt is a, a preservative. It preserves things and keeps them pure and fresh. So for example, again in the Old Testament, in Numbers 18, 19, the ministry of the priests is called a, a covenant of salt which is crazy, I'd never heard that before studying this, a covenant of salt. It's a covenant of salt because when the priests made sacrifice for the people, they kept them pure and preserved the people. So doing discipleship in the mold of Jesus purifies. It preserves life rather than loses it. That's what it means to be salty. And that applies not only to the disciples' own life, but to the ministry they will do. That's why Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth in the Sermon on the Mount. Disciples are the salt that seasons the world. When you and I are salty, we're pure and preserved from death and corruption, and we preserve and purify the world by doing the ministry of Jesus. 
As last week we said, we are all ministers of Jesus' gospel. Salt of the earth, seasoning the world. So second, discipleship is good. It's what you need to be preserved, to be purified. And third, and this is sort of the point Jesus has been making the whole time, the reason he's correcting the disciples, for discipleship to be good, for it to be salty, it must remain pure. It must stick to the mold of the, the Messiah. We don't get to make discipleship in whatever we want it to be. We're shaped into the mold. So Jesus asks, if salt loses its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? If saltiness represents Christ-likeness, then losing saltiness would be losing what it means to be a disciple. So the point throughout this has been you won't be salty if you seek honor through grandiosity or exclusivity. You won't be salty if you seek intimacy by excluding others rather than being a servant of all. You won't be salty if you seek life through clinging to your autonomy rather than dying to yourself. And Jesus' point is, an unchristlike disciple is as contradictory as unsalty salt. Salt can't be unsalty in the real world. A disciple, if it is a disciple, cannot be unchristlike. To enter life with Jesus, we must be humbled and die with Jesus. The Messiah is the mold of discipleship. So, a word on this to, to us as a church. This is kind of a severe passage where Jesus is correcting and rebuking. Jesus has been pretty severe with his disciples, and it's clear to us that humbling ourselves and dying to ourselves is not something that comes naturally or maybe not even that sounds very fun. So on the one hand, this is a text that should sober us, to, to realize the eternal stakes of what it means to be called to follow Jesus. Eternal life or death is on the line. But, but I don't think this passage is meant to discourage us and put this standard that none of us can ever le- uh, reach. So consider the 12 disciples that Jesus is talking to in this passage. They didn't get this right at all in the Gospel of Mark. To the end, the disciples are still messing up. And yet Jesus did not lose patience with them. He bore with them. And Mark is not the end of the story either. These prideful, immature, selfish, foolish disciples continued on and were reshaped and molded into the image of the Messiah. As you see them here in Mark 9, 30 through 50, is not how they ended. And so where you're at now is not where you must end your walk with Christ. Consider John, who said something foolish in this passage. He went on to write the Gospel of John, three letters of the New Testament, and even Acts 12.2 tells us he followed his Savior in death, being killed as a martyr. Or even, even more clearly, Peter, the king of the foot in his mouth in, in, the, in the Gospels, wrote 
the letter of First Peter later, having matured into the disciple into into the Messiah's mold. This is what Peter says um, as an encouragement to Christians in First Peter four twelve and thirteen. He says, "Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice, rejoice in your suffering, as you share in Christ's sufferings." so that you may, be, you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of, the, of glory and of God rests upon you. That sounds like somebody who is a servant of all, who rejoices to suffer because that's the way of intimacy with Christ. Rejoice in your sufferings because in them you share with Christ. It took Peter a long time, but he got it. By God's grace, by God's work in him, he got it. And he lived a life as an apostle, as an elder, as a servant of all. Rejoicing in his suffering because in his humiliation, he's close to Christ. When we serve, when we suffer for the gospel's sake, Christ is so close to you. So, to you this morning, if if what we've talked about discipleship sounds radical or sounds confusing or discouragingly unattainable, if it sounds distasteful or frightening, be encouraged because that's exactly how the disciples felt all through Jesus' ministry. And they weren't doomed to stay there. Trust with a heart of faith and prayer like we talked about last week. Trust in faith that by the grace of God, you can make progress. Not because you are born as good or wise or moral as Jesus, but by, because by God's grace, by his spirit, you can. Through the means that, that we, we follow in as disciples together in our church, preaching the gospel to one another, singing together, encouraging one another, reading scripture together. These are means that God uses not just to throw up an example but to give a mold to reshape our hearts into servants of all. So I want to encourage you specifically in one thing. We're about to take the Lord's Supper today. So, so if, you're, if you're a Christian, as you take the Lord's Supper today, consider what that meal represents. That as a, as a Christian, you abide in Christ. That as we eat the bread and drink the cup, that's representing how Christ's own power is in us, his own grace and strength. It's shaping you. Shaping you to be united with him in servanthood and death and to be resurrected with him in honor and love. Consider the intimacy you have with Jesus as you take that meal. If you're not a Christian, I... I would invite you to take that time not to take the Lord's Supper, but to consider what we've said today, that following Jesus, as costly as it is, that it is good. It is a matter of eternal life and death, but it's good. Consider that you will never save your own life by clinging to it on your own terms. But it's the way of the Messiah. It's through submitting your life to Jesus that you can save it, that you can have peace in your soul through 
dying to yourself and rising again with Jesus. To all of us, we must be humbled and die with Jesus in order to enter life with him, to enjoy it. To that end, let's pray together. Father and our God, we thank you for the closeness you've given us in your spirit. We pray that the high standards of discipleship you've set for us would not be a discouragement of something we can't attain, but would be something that excites our souls, knowing that if you've begun a good work in us, you will bring it to completion. That that unattainable goal is something you will bring us to. We pray that you would give us faith and patience and great measure of grace to follow Jesus to that end. We pray that you would give us humility to take after the servant of all example of Jesus. We pray that you would give us the courage to even die to ourself, to lose that thing that would cause us to stumble in order to gain something so much better. Rejoice our hearts in you, God. Give us great, great joy. The sort of joy that says, I count all that I've lost as nothing for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Even as your scripture stings us and rebukes us, we know that it is good when you afflict us because that's the discipline of a father and it's a sign of your love for us. We thank you for your great love. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.